You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to TFM's local books and comic show for Star Trek, and I'm so excited to be here. I'm just one of the hosts, Matthew Rushing, and I'm so glad to have back with me the wonderful, gracious, beautiful Bruce Gibson. Hi, I am beautiful. Thank you for having me here. Oh yes, it is. It is true. I'm. I'm just excited to have you back, fresh off of your successful panel there at uh, the latest Star Trek convention. This one was held in Chicago. Uh, you had a books panel, and and Bruce, um, you had some news. But we'll get to that in a second because we'll we'll have you break the news here for everybody who wasn't paying attention. Which I can't imagine anybody listening to the show wasn't paying attention. But. With us as well, we've got back Casey. Casey, I'm so glad you're here because we're going to be finishing up the Left Hand of Destiny series today. Yes, I'm excited to get into it. And uh, as, as I gaze upon Bruce's countenance and his lovely visage. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're just blessed to be in his presence yeah. here on Zoom. It's hard, as we it's hard when he's not here that we have to look at each it's other. True. And- it's true. Whoa, 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 Bruce. <laughs> Keep it together. Keep it together. Shirt stays uh, I'm on. so glad this isn't a video podcast for people. Uh, but um, <laughs> Bruce, so what was the big news that came from your uh, books and comics panel? It's that I got through the whole thing. That's what the big news is. <laughs> <Yay>. <laughs> no. So uh, the big news is uh, one of the panelists was author John Jackson Miller. And, you know, he's written some Star Trek stuff before. And so he has. Yeah, we announced a new novel that is coming out this November on November 6th. And it's no, I'm sorry, November 8th. That's a little too soon. November 6th. It's November Mm -hmm. 8th. And it's a strange new worlds novel called The High Country. And it's and Pike Pike gets a horse. Which is so, I mean, it's super exciting. I mean, who doesn't want to see a man about a horse, especially a captain? And uh, Casey, did you get a chance also to uh, see the the cover for this as well that that he put out on Twitter? I did. I'm I'm excited for it. I'm I'm hoping it's better than the other space westerns that we've been reading through um, recently in the New Earth series. But uh, yes, I I don't know what to say about it. I'm excited. I, I. I love that you said space western because that's exactly what it is. I mean, John was telling me that he always wants to do a different style of book. And so like his Rios book was kind of more of a mystery book. Enterprise War is more of a war book. This is a western book. So it definitely does have a western feel to it. And I'm excited about this. Um, you know, I love John Jackson Miller and uh, the cover is is very nice for this. 
Uh, and, you know, his Picard novel, Rogue Elements, I thought was a phenomenal book, actually. Um, and, and, of course, really, I think, gave us an insight into the character of Rios, which was great. And so I can't wait to see what he's going to do here. And, and mainly because, you know, the trailers for Strange New Worlds really give us a sense that Pike is in a kind of an interesting space headspace as to you know uh, why is he on a horse in the first place it seems like there he's being brought back to start fleet which is an interesting thing since you know we also know from the cage he's like i'm kind of ready to give this up and uh so does he have that happen frequently i mean what's going on with this guy so uh it looks like we're going to get the opportunity to really dig into that more with his book and give maybe some context even more so to season one which will have ended by that point so yeah i'm very excited for this so um and uh hopefully we'll get more book news coming soon uh so i can tell you you will be that's all i can say Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> yes, it's true. I actually know that too. I wasn't going to say anything, but yes, we have the same source on we that, do. Bruce. And so, but that is exciting that that is going to be coming. We are going to be getting more books and book news coming, which is great. But we also had some comic releases this week that we're going to be diving into. So I wanted to get into Mirror War 5 with you guys because this one. Y'all, I don't even know what's happening in this comic anymore. Because uh, we, like, time-jumped, like, two years from the last issue. And I I don't... I, what did you guys think? It's a lot more of the same, for sure. I, they're two years in the future and still building ships and still trying to take over the world, I guess. I, um, it's the same thing. It, it, it's the same thing we do every night. Try to take over the universe. Exactly. Yeah, it was just all over the place. Um, Got Shelby in it, I guess. I mean, Admiral Nagura. Not Nagura. um, Admiral uh, Necheyev. Yeah. They were there. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Casey's doing a very good job of giving us a painting of what you can expect Uh, that's exactly what you can expect they're in it (laughs) yeah i was uh i i'm in the same place i have been for all these i i don't know what's going on i don't know why i care about these characters or what they're doing so they've got dilithium now for their ships okay i guess Yeah. yeah yeah um I don't know what it is, but I actually enjoyed this issue a little more than the other ones. And maybe it's just because I know what to expect. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I, I mean, so, you know, not to expect. Well, anything. I don't know. I, 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 you know, I think because because it jumped two years ahead and I remember thinking, wait, did I miss something? Did it really just jump two years ahead? But to me, it almost made like a fresh start. Like, okay, well, this is like starting maybe another story. And yet, it kind of is repetitive with the others. But I was liking the fact that Picard is basically still failing in the eyes of the Empire. And he's still trying to do whatever he can to do to keep, you know, trying to win, to keep his ship, to try to do whatever it is. And he, we even have a facepalm. We have a mirror universe facepalm in here, a Picard, which was really thrilling on so many levels but uh i don't know it was just it, it yeah it's like the others i i don't know there isn't 
like, yeah, the the goal's the same thing. They're trying to, Picard's trying to take lead of the Empire and not really able to achieve anything. He's not really getting there yet. Would you say that's what the comic is doing? It's not getting there yet? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I feel like we are in this constant place with this comic over and over and over again where we're not actually moving anywhere um and and it's weird like it's real weird uh because i don't know and and may and you guys can can help me out with this but i legitimately don't know if i've ever read a comic where i feel like less has happened and that is very very strange to me that you know i think one of the things that we've mentioned over and over again is we don't know why we're reading the story because n- nothing in the story seems to really be happening and you know we time jump and so you would think you would think that something interesting had happened in that time but really it's just kind of more of the same in the sense that i don't have a sense of where this story is headed casey maybe you'll like this i feel like it's the phase four of the mcu i don't really know where this is going um but we just keep putting out content and so that's what this feels like we just keep putting out an issue but every issue leads me to ask the same question which is why are we telling the the story so maybe maybe It'll all wrap up and it'll all make sense soon, which I think would be great. Well, that's a really good analogy, I feel like, with the phase four of the MCU, because, yeah, as I watch through all those things, it's like, you know, with, even in the first phases of the MCU, you know, you're going with the Infinity Stones and Thanos, and that was the direction it was going. Yeah, and this comic series really is, is following the phase four of just like, let's throw some stories out there. Some of them maybe aren't the 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 greatest in the world and i feel like from the first issue of this comic series we didn't we don't we don't know where uh chronologically it takes place in the mcu i think it's kind of before the episodes of deep space nine that we had maybe so if that's the case we kind of know that picard's probably not gonna succeed which once you get to the end of 10 issues of a comic what was the point of that but even some of the story elements in even just this one issue in particular, I feel like there was just almost too much they were trying to put in here that didn't need to happen. I mean, they could have had an entire issue just about them trying to get the dilithium for all their ships, but they spent like two pages on it and their plan worked according to plan like perfectly. And, and the same thing with, with data, with whatever his mission was, um, you know, crash landing on that planet and just, everything going perfectly according to plan. They could have drawn some of these out and added some more suspense, like, a, you know, we're going to kill off a character here. Or what's going to happen? You know, and mm-hmm. then at the end of the issue, okay, we've won this battle and gotten this to lithium and now on to the next phase of whatever our plan is that hopefully we would have established if this had been better outlined, I feel like. You know, I, I don't know what to say because Scott and David Tipton have written so many Star Trek comics, and so mm-hmm. many of them have been so good. And I don't, I, I don't. It's not the writing so much. It's just it's yeah. It's like you were saying. It's not really going anywhere. I mean, if you read the first issue, 
really what's happening in the first issue is the same thing that's happening here in the fifth issue. It's it's just that mm-hmm. whole thing of they're trying to build a fleet and they want to take control of the Empire and the Empire doesn't trust them, doesn't think they're doing a good job, they're failing at it, and Picard getting pissed off. And I will have my way, I will make this work. Yeah. <laughs> and like every issue is a pissed off Picard that he's going to make, he's gonna win at some point. And that's all we seem to be getting. And again, I don't yep. know why I kind of enjoyed this one a little more. Maybe because it, it I don't know. Maybe because when you put data in a capsule, it kind of seems silly to me. And so I was just reading it for mm-hmm. a, a, the silly parts of it. <laughs> yeah. I Yeah. In addition to the Picard, the mirror Picard facepalm, I also just happened to notice as I'm flipping through it again that the Klingons have pink blood. As we know they did, in, at least in the Star Trek Six era. Nice. So, okay, now yes. that, that ups my rating. There you go. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Well, so we had the other comic that that came out, which um, I'm very interested to hear both of your takes here as we are back in the uh, 32nd century with Discovery uh, and their adventures uh, here with issue two. And so... What did you guys think about this latest issue of Adventures in the 32nd century? It's it's like a it I feel like, you know, you have to say it like that because, you know, it sounds like a Buck Rogers episode. But I feel like that these uh these issues are a little less um ominous or adventure packed as you might expect. <laughs> this one was this one was an interesting one. It focused on Adira and um really their life before discovery showed up. And so it, it what's, what, what's interesting too, is that it was a lot of, um, a lot of exposition, I guess, and not a lot of dialogue. It's more of their thoughts or like a log entry or something like that. And then some dialogue with some of the characters, but really just kind of a snapshot of who this character is before they came on to star Trek discovery, which I don't know. I mean, it was, I, I felt like it was a kind of a good little story felt filled in maybe a couple small gaps. You know, it's just, I don't feel like I was missing anything about the character before this comic, but at the same time, I feel like this did a good job of adding a little bit of depth to Adira. Yeah. I liked seeing the generation ship and the mission mm. that they're on and Adira's part of that mission. And so, so was gray and how important it was to Adira and even to gray to hope and that the Federation would reestablish. It was like this dream that the Federation could, could be its thing again someday and that they could be a part of it. And of course, then we know that happens and we see that at the end, but this is all stuff that we know, but yeah, it's like seeing, seeing the events that happened before what we saw happen on discovery was pretty interesting and just the relationship between the two characters and what gray does to the replicator with the apples and uh seeing uh should have been hot bananas but you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly but sanal tall we get to see him in this and then the whole transfer but of course we know all this stuff but it's it's kind of just taking that storyline we know about and just telling the full story of it you know, I mean, it's not there's not a whole lot here, but it's a simple story. And if you like the characters of Adira and Gray, 
I definitely recommend this. Yeah, and I think I like one of the things you said that Adira um, really holds those Starfleet and Federation values, and even after the burn, was really feeling like a, like had had this hope that the Federation was going to show back up and that they were going to be reunited. You know, the Federation was going to be reunited, and and lo and behold, that actually happens, you know, and and it this story actually made me glad that Adira got to experience that uh just because of I don't know, the loyalty or the just the ideals, I guess, that they hold that um that they get to experience now because the Federation and Starfleet's back together and almost makes you, I guess, understand the character a little bit more on the show on how kind of excited and zany and whatever that they get that, you know, Mary Wiseman's character, um, Tilly used to kind of be like in, in the first seasons. And so this almost kind of, even though a deer is a little bit more subdued in the comic, like some of that excitement coming out in the show makes, makes a little bit more sense. But yeah, I, I definitely agree. If this, if you, if you like Adira and gray and, and those, um, you know, that, that story, this is a, a definite should read. Well, everything we know about Adira has, you know, they have the symbiont in them. Mm-hmm. And when this issue started and they're leaving Earth, I'm like, what are they doing on Earth? And I keep forgetting that Indira is a human from Earth because right. I, I still think sometimes of Adira as a trill, but they're not a trill, you know, but they have right. a trill symbiont in them. So I was like, oh, yeah, duh. I mean, I know it, but it's just. We just haven't really seen much of this character prior to that, so that that was kind of cool. Yeah, as far as ratings, I, um, you know, it's kind of like the last one. You know, I think you know with the the Grudge story, it was a little it was a little tough to rate just because it was just such a that one was I guess just an oddball story anyway. But this is just since it's a kind of a one shot on this character. It's I mean it's it's a good story, but. It's hard to like compare it with anything, but I guess just comparing it with itself, um, <laughs> I'll give it a uh, four trill symbionts uh, out of five. Yeah, I'll because it focuses on these two characters and the it kind of leads into what you see in Discovery. I'll give this four and a half out of five apples eaten. So there's just an apple and a half left. <laughs> or a half an apple are you on the six six star rating six apple rating no f- yeah no you're right just a half an apple left uh, yeah the other one's for the teacher <laughs> okay <laughs> well guys i don't know about you but uh maybe we should hop over into the feature and shake the left hand of destiny well we are here at book two uh of the left hand of destiny and so we'll be wrapping up this duology uh, this week, and I was really interested um, in that this book, and one of the things we had kind of talked about as we discussed the first one was, you know, why Esri was here, you know, um, because she doesn't get a lot to do in that in that first book, um, and in fact, she's just really in the end of the book, but here, I, I really loved the way that this book utilizes her character and the fact that she is not Gen Zia uh, to the to the utmost in this story and that she brings a perspective here about Klingons that is actually going to be really important for where this story is going, which is all about kind of 
a Klingon Reformation, one might call it. Yeah, it was I, my very first note on this book was it's interesting to start a Martok story with Ezri because she's like the first thing that we're reading is her. <laughs> and so I um, but I she was the one in season seven of Deep Space Nine who told Worf that maybe the Klingon Empire is ready to, to die or to be re, to re be to be reborn. And we're seeing. So you're saying it's a good day to it die. It might be a good day to die. I don't. It's a good good day for an empire to die, perhaps. But you know, she's <laughs> it, for her to be here to to witness it, but also to help it. I mean, uh, I think one of the last things that the book says or in the last chapter is that you know nobody knew it yet, but in the future they would say that this was the day that the Klingon Empire was reborn, and so her her knowledge of Klingons from Curzon and then even from from Jedzia, obviously being married to Worf was an interesting perspective that we got in the show, but now even more here, I feel like because she's still that character that's kind of questioning herself as a symbiont and are these memories hers or, um, or, you know, and she says at one point, I'm just going to have to trust the slug. And so she's still like, I feel like this is just a good, a good Esri story because she's still, I, She's still trying to find herself, I think, in all this, and in the meantime, trying to help her family in the Klingon Empire, I guess, do that to find themselves, help Martok find himself and, and you know, in any way she can. And she's so um, resolute with her decision to go that she just, you know, she's practically lying to Kira, even though Kira knows exactly what's up, um, you know, about, about going. Um, but she just knows that she's got this blood oath that Jadzia had, that Curzon had, that she's going to stick with her family. And I thought, you know, her her being there was a little weird in the last book, but in this one I felt like was totally justified. I was thrilled to see her starting off the book because, yeah, we didn't get much of her in the first one, but seeing her in the second one, I really wanted to get a lot of Esri, and we do get quite a bit of her in this. And so I was really happy about that. And, you know, as you're talking through this, Casey and Matt, even when you started off, I thought, you know, she really does reflect what this book is about, right? It's like she she understands the Klingon culture because of the past lives of Dax, but she doesn't necessarily has participated in it. But her view of it is that, yeah, things have got to change or maybe the path the Klingons took has, you know, they've gone off of that path in the direction they should have gone. And she knows that maybe she needs to help to correct that. But I like at the same time that she is who she is, but when she has to bring that Klingon sense out of her to deal with situations like with Martok's wife, Sorella, and she stands up to her and proves her point, and Sorella's kind of like, yeah, okay, I like this one. You know, she can bring that out of her. So this was, yeah, definitely a, a good place to, to put Esri in for her next growth path. So I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I thought that it was also nice just because Worf and Jadzia having gone on the quest to find the Sword of Kalos and then dumping it into space and then them having to try and find it here, it made sense as well just from a logistical standpoint as to why Worf would need her uh, here. And I think I love what you said, Bruce, about the way in which she can summon the memories of Curzon or Dadzia to challenge people in a very Klingon way 
and yet she understands the flaws of the Klingon philosophy at the moment. Um, you know, there's that great moment. We'll talk about a little bit more later, but she's uh, talking about why, you know, glorious battle doesn't really matter unless the battle has a point. You know, death is only glorious with a well-lived life, she says. By itself, death is only death. And and so she is able to express exactly what Martok has been feeling, what uh, the the other characters in the story that we meet are saying about what's wrong with the Klingon Empire, and then it's a character who's saying it that we you know believe in and trust as as readers because of our experience with Deep Space Nine. So I thought that that was a, a lot of fun to have her here, and it was nice to you know, see her be able to actually see, like, the fruition of the things that she had talked to Worf about. You know, it's it's not easy for them to, you know, be together uh, all the time because of the history, but I, I felt like she deserves to have seen this play out as much as any character here because of her connection with all of these characters, which I think is really cool. Um, so I think, you know, when, when I think of Jeff Lang and JG Hertzler putting this story together, really, I think they thought a lot about what characters they would want to use in this story and they utilize them very, very well. The other thing I like is that she is the only non-Klingon character in these Klingon situations. So we get a perspective of someone who's not Klingon in this these Klingon environments. She's like the, what, Marilyn Munster of the group, you know? So <laughs> she's, she's the only one that's uh, got that perspective of, I'm not Klingon. I'm the only one here that's not Klingon. So we get those perspectives from her. Well, and we do get that. We, there's the Ferengi. Well, that's that we true. To. Yes. Yeah. Far. And he, but, but I mean, still, okay. So two characters that are not Klingon, you know, and she's though the only one that's really, um, pushing against them, I guess, pushing their boundaries of their thoughts and their beliefs. Cause with the Ferengi, he's actually almost acting more like a Klingon or, you know, cause he doesn't really have a family. He doesn't, he doesn't believe that he's going to get into, the Ferengi equivalent of heaven or Stovacor or whatever, you know, he says he can't afford it, you know? And so like he, by the end of the book, he's asking Martok to help him get into Stovacor. So he's almost like, uh, you know, taking on these Klingon values. But yeah, with Ezri, she's really, really is an outsider that's looking in uh, and, and judging the Klingon values and saying, you know, maybe, maybe things need to be different. And yeah, Matthew, like you said, Getting, getting her getting to watch this play out, I, I think is great for her character, for Ezri, but also for Dax, who's been involved with the Klingons mm-hmm. for so long. Yeah. Well, and on that, I think one of the things that leads me to thinking of is the way in which family is such an important part of this. Um, you know, Martok 
legitimately loses most of his family. He loses his wife. He loses his daughters. Only his son survives. And yet he does have this family in Worf and Alexander Esri. Uh, you, you've got, you know, Dar, Darak and, you know, you mentioned the Ferengi Farah. I think it's a far, far. Anyway, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that's something that um, is really, really interesting. And, and in many ways, I was kind of thinking about that idea that for Martok, he, he does kind of become the father of the new Klingon Empire, you know? And, and so in some ways, his family is now you know, all of Kronos, all of, all of, you know, all Klingons that are now alive because he's the one who's going to be kind of shepherd, help shepherding them into this new era um, and this rediscovery of what it actually means to be Klingon. So I found that really fascinating in this idea of what, you know, we see here with family. Yeah. In the last book, we kind of had a love fest as we talked about Martok, and I, I feel like in this one, that's just another thing that I love about this character is that during Deep Space Nine, we saw Martok and Worf really bond as brothers to the point where Martok invited Worf, an outcast, into his house, meaning that Alexander, who Worf had, uh, I, I don't even think you could call it a relationship with Alexander, but you know, Alexander, by extension, came part of the house, and Jadzia did, and then by extension, Ezri is part of the house as well. And Martok even says so that you know you're still you're still a a daughter or sister or whatever of this house, and he's just Martok is such a new kind of Klingon that's kind of almost refreshing to see that he's. I think he loves the old ways, but is not so entrenched in them that he's blinded by it. I mean, obviously he's pretty much leading a revolution and he's also not so, I don't know if xenophobic is the right word, like, but he's, he's willing to, to let outsiders in like with Ezri and with the Ferengi far and with the Ferengi, I mean, like the way we've seen them portrayed in, in, in all of Star Trek really is just kind of, the bumbling idiots almost, you know, and to see this one that comes in kind of acting like that at the beginning, but Martok, although annoyed by him, really, he lets him come along. He doesn't, you know, shoo him off, or even if he does, Far comes back, and Martok is pleased by that, you know, and, and, and welcomes him in and even dedicates a battle to him. And, you know, he's like the perfect father figure, I think, for this group of people but also for the Klingon Empire in general because I think he's just such a good example to set for the for the people. Yeah, he is a good father figure. Like you're saying about Far, I was just thinking about how yeah, he I didn't really think of him as a father figure too far, but that probably is the best way to describe it. But I was trying to think maybe older brother or something, but that that doesn't it, it's almost like maybe even like an uncle to a nephew that he really can't stand, but then eventually, you know, kind of takes him under his wing, you know, because the, the relationship and the respect then is earned. It wasn't yeah. just something that naturally came about and it just grew over time. But, you know, his, 
relationship with these other characters, it's interesting how he brings others into the house, into his house, and yet, you know, they're not necessarily all Klingon, like we've talked about with Ezri and, and Far or Farah or whatever his name is. But, you know, it's like he loses his blood family and then he brings in the surrogate family into his life. And they don't necessarily replace those that he loves, but it just shows that he can have a house built with people that he can trust and they can not just trust him, but rely on him to make the right decisions, just like you might look mm-hmm. at your father to send the family on the right direction. Now, I, I mean, I think it's really interesting because, you know, this whole series, uh, this, the, these two books really have been kind of about the fact that, and uh, I think Casey, you rightly mentioned that this is something that was pinpointed by Esri back in the series, but there is a Klingon sickness. And they have forgotten what it means to be Klingons because they have spent too much time in stories and songs which exaggerate what it means without actually kind of understanding the truth of their past. Um, There is... This this great section where they they talk about um, that the Klingons had improperly channeled the energies that would ignite the galaxy, turning uh, all against them. They possessed all the attributes they needed to become a great pe- the great people they hungered to be, but they were out of balance. That they had paid lip service to the concepts of discipline and honor, but their actions had become a sad pantomime, their hearts locked in the past. In the end, brute force is not enough to survive. And I just, there's so much in this book where so many people, I even even pulled out a ton of quotes in their honor outline, but like there was so much here where they had rightly diagnosed the sickness that the Klingons have been experiencing for so many years. And what, and and, and by doing that, I think what it was going to take for them to turn it around. And, and when I joked in many ways that this is a Klingon reformation, I mean, it very much, this, this two part story is very akin to what we see happen in enterprise. I think with the Vulcans where it's they have lost what it means to be truly Vulcan, and they need a reawakening. And the Klingons the same way, except for them, theirs is much more bloody, and and they need to get you know hit over the head with a batleth a few times to really understand you know how much they've lost and what it's going to take to get it back. So, I I loved that this this part of the story that we took something from the end of Deep Space Nine, and we really built on it to create a new Klingon empire um, that is truly going to be something that, you know, as we then moved on in the rest of the Litverse, I mean, the Klingon empire became this incredible ally of the Federation in a way that was only a dream in the mind of Gorkon years and years past. It's interesting because, especially since we have the 
clone emperor of Kaelas, yeah, a lot is talked about the old ways or, or you know what what Kaelas tried to teach them when in his original life and even the meaning of honor and you know how that was something that kind of came later and um I feel like I feel like almost that this book is trying to address in some of these conversations that people are having is that not only have the Klingons lost their way, but it's almost like saying us as viewers or the writers of the shows made them so um, mm-hmm. like a monoculture of warriors. And, but, you know, we even see that there's monks, which we saw on the shows, but that, you know, with, you know, commerce, you know, the Ferengi was a, a great example of, you know, dealing with commerce and um you know one of the one of the quotes that you have you know in our outline here is about that like why why isn't commerce a warrior's concern and and talking about like they should know where their house gets their money because especially if there's um they're they're uh kind of getting their money or their their wealth or they're getting their power by nefarious means that are not honorable and and just showing that like there there are other aspects to the Klingon culture that I think a lot of people have forgotten. And I think that includes breaking the fourth wall as us as readers and us as fans of the show. We think of Klingons, we think of warriors, but we don't really think about some of these deep um, beliefs that they've got, the ones that are truly rooted in their past. And especially where it comes to Kaelas and what he tried to um, impart on the Klingons, not necessarily just about battle for battle's sake or for, um, you know, just jumping into battle because you want to battle. Like, you know, like a battle without a goal is just chaos and chaos leads to death. It makes me think of our mirror war comics that we're reading. It's without an end and end goal in sight. It's just chaos. And, um, I, I just feel like it did such a good job of shedding light on, I think some of those things about this monoculture that we've seen, you know, throughout the years in Star Trek and really does give them a good jumping off point to go as they, you know, this is at the very beginning of our 24th century literature that really takes off from here. And, you know, yeah, like you said, Matthew, the, the Klingons really become a, you know, almost like a more well-developed culture. I feel like after this, you guys are saying everything that I'm thinking, like, I start to think it, and then you say it. And I'm just like, <laughs> yes, because, and I was thinking of the Vulcans of Enterprise too, Matt, when, before you brought them up. But yeah, it's like when we watch the series as these progress, they, they bring the Vulcans into the shows, they bring the Klingons into the shows, and we get several episodes, and they've done a good job developing them. But as time goes on, and you do more stories, you get to develop these beings into something more than just this flat one-dimensional thing and you know if you were to ask somebody what is a klingon someone would say oh well they're warriors and they're about honor but there's more to it than that you can't just be a species of being warriors and honor there's more depth to it and i feel like this book is calling that out and saying you know yeah maybe klingons lost their way because they're more than just that. And they themselves have to realize that they are more than just that. That there's more to it than just honor. And what does honor really mean? And who is it that you really have to trust? And what is fear? Fear is another thing that comes up. And fear is really about acknowledging the fear within yourself and not just abandoning fear altogether. 
you know, I need my pain, as Kirk says, right? And the Klingons need it too. That's how you're going to develop and find yourself and become a more enriched society if you acknowledge that instead of being this just one flat mission. And I think this book does a good job with that. Mm-hmm. Well, and I love that you're saying that, Bruce, because, you know, it's one of the things that they say, and it was well in the book, um, th- this lost wisdom of Kalos, the greatest lesson that he taught us was this, we Klingons should fear nothing except ourselves. No one could destroy us except ourselves. This was the harsh lesson, one that our people have forgotten. This is why, why this is so, we cannot say, but we have we, Katai, have made it our law. We do not forget. And I love that because this is why it is so important to rightly understand, you know, one's history. Um, and to not sensationalize it or to downplay it in any way, but to have a correct understanding of it so that, that we don't forget important lessons. We don't forget who we are. And that's something that Klingons have done here. And so they do need this, you know, come to Kalos moment uh, to, to be able to rightly understand where they truly are so that they can understand where they need to go. And I, I, I think this book is fen- phenomenal in that sense because one of the beauties of Deep Space Nine was breaking the monocultures of the societies especially we saw that you know they did that a great job with um obviously the Cardassians and the Bajorans but they even began to do that with the Klingons as well and so this book series I think just does such a fantastic job of continuing that legacy and that's one of the things that you know I think we all as fans who read these books, this is why we really loved the best of them because they continued the story in a way that not only felt like a logical progression from where we left the show, but then they also took the characters and places and these races and different cultures and places that we wanted to see them be able to go as well and really explored the full potential that they had. So, yeah, I mean, I absolutely love that. And one of the other things here, too, is that we finally get a full understanding of who the enemy is here uh, with Gothmara and her son Morjad uh, and exactly who she is, which I was very interested to realize that basically she's just a Klingon Benny Jesuit. I had to look up that reference. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm a bad in nerd. Dune, <laughs> yeah, in Dune, the Bene Jesuit are characters that uh, one they have the the ability to use what they call the voice, which could, they can control people with. Uh, so we see that, uh, but also uh, they are geneticists who are working to by mixing humanity's bloodlines to create the perfect person to lead them into the future and you know so we kind of see her do this with the idea that she's she's the one who helped create Kalos uh the clone to undermine Galron and create a civil war and then of course you know she creates Morjad as a as another plan to take over the empire as well as the Herc that will obey her and and then of course we find out that not only has she created the Herc 
from the past, but she spliced them with now Klingon DNA, which is terrifying. And so I I found her to be not only obviously crazy, but a, a really good villain in the sense that she is a different type of villain for the Klingon Empire. Well, yeah, because in the first book, I thought she was just a nut. She was just this, you know, villain that's trying to take over the Empire and ha ha ha. But then we see the brilliance of her planning. And like you said, she's not maybe all the way there, you know, mentally, but she is brilliant in how she puts all this stuff together and how she brings her son into it and these creatures and such and everything in here. I mean, she took years and years of planning. This wasn't something she just did overnight or within a year, you know? And so she was patient, which is amazing to me in a lot of ways because she doesn't seem all that patient now in the book, but she was patient to get to this point. Yeah, and I, I, I kind of like when they, when the authors can take little bits of information that we've gotten throughout Star Trek and tie it together with, with one thing, like with Gothmara being the one that created um, the clone of Kalos, like... We we didn't need that. She didn't have to have done that. Like that wasn't some like, you know, according to the monks in whichever episode that was of Next Generation where he came back, uh, they created him. But obviously she was there with the monks helping do this and, you know, doing something, you know, with, with her plan that, that Martok had seen many years ago. But um man, yeah, this I, I feel like this this book really fleshed out her character a lot a lot better and um, I mean, even her son Morjad at the end of the book or at the end of his life, really, he turned into a Herc. And that was like a gruesome scene uh, as, as it was written. I and, love that part. <laughs> yeah. and mm-hmm. But also just e- even more solidified how really evil, I guess, that Gothmara was that she would do that to her own son either while he was still in the womb or after he was born or who knows, you know, or if he was born in vitro or whatever, you know, like, but, you know, even leading up to that, you know, we were getting in in her head a little bit and finding out that she, that he is just another tool for her. Like she does not love him Mm -hmm. as a son. Even Martok is starting to think of him as his son. Like he keeps referring to him as my son, you know, from time to time when he's talking to other people, Rather than distancing himself from that, he's almost taking responsibility for this, you know, youthful indiscretion. I think we called it the last time, um, you know, from his past. And um, yeah, this lady's nuts, though. I mean, uh, I, I don't know exactly, you know, where she thought this was going to go. If like the whole Klingon, like, because I don't think that she ever had any thoughts that she would be the ruler of the Klingon Empire. I think she was literally just. Some people just like to watch the world burn, as the Joker would tell us. I think that's kind of what I got from this character. Yeah, I felt like she was going to have her son lead, but she's pulling the strings, right? I yeah. Mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. And uh, I love how Morjad, her son, figures this out like at the end. Like, yeah. you know, he knows that his mother was in the wrong, but it took to the very end of his life to figure that out. Yeah, I thought that this was, uh, you know, great because you see her as a character who, you know, in the end, it really did come down for her. She wanted to destroy Martok for destroying her family, right? And exposing the fact that 
you know, they were creating bioweapons in the era of Gorkun's peace. None of that was needed. Um, and they had actually wanted Martok, you know, because he was a tactical genius and they wanted his help. And, you know, he wasn't going to go along with that. So, you know, I just, uh, I, I think she turns out to be a really interesting villain and, and kind of just a terrifying one because it, it shows what, you know, somebody could do that has no conscience and they just start experimenting, you know, genetically uh, and it's terrifying. So one of the, the things, of course, and I think probably the biggest thing about this book is that this is about a second coming. You know, Martok is the new Kalos. He's the Klingon Messiah who was healed in three days. You know, I mean, uh, it's funny because as we're recording, we just had Easter happen. And so, I mean, all the allusions to him being this kind of Klingon Messiah, you know, they he doesn't have 12 followers. He has 13 followers as the guy who are left, which was interesting. Very Klingon to have 13 um, instead of 12. So I, I just, I thought that this was great, though, by them introducing this idea that there was this remnant of Katai who were left over, who are the firebringers, the, the last embers of what it truly means to be Klingon, who are the builders and the teachers and the, the last true disciples of, of Kalos. And turns out Martok's father was part of this. And so, you know, I, I think I loved the way that they worked all of this in. And again, I think it's something that kind of legitimizes where they want to go with the Klingons, that working this idea and that, no, the, they are missing something. And uh, what they're missing is is this, you know, this this truth of, of understanding what it means to be Klingon, as we were talking about beforehand, um, and then kind of tying in people that can then help them reclaim that. You know, it's not just Martok, but there are others as well. Yeah, I... Um... Until I saw this in the outline as as Martok as the Klingon Messiah, that had not even occurred to me. But I had to had to smile as I saw that in there, and as you were talking about it, just because it's I don't know if they necessarily intended, and and I I really doubt that the writers of Deep Space Nine intended for for Martok to have this type of role. But I mean, you know, Martok you know, has that kind of Christ analogy anyway, like more than even just being healed in three days or, I mean, he came out of nothing, you know, he came from, you know, uh, you know, a family that didn't, didn't have much. He's kind of, um, he's not without sin for sure. Like Martok is not, but, but he, he grows up and he's always trying to do the right thing. Like even, you know, when he's in the dominion prison camp and having to fight, he's, he's, not going to just let himself die, but he's also not going to, um, you know, let anybody else die. Like he, you know, he fought so the others didn't have to. And he, you know, even after the war, he had the, um, the chancellorship thrust upon him and didn't want it. He was kind of a reluctant leader. And I, I feel like he's, it just make him, made him the, the perfect, leader of this new empire and you know having 
having these these teachers, these katai, and then also finding out that his father was one too. He thought his father was a nobody. He came from the Kethalo lands. He, you know, he thought him. He thought his family were, were nobodies. But, but to find out that his family is also steeped in this tradition too, that are that remember the way that Klingons, I guess, should be, and can help lead others and teach others that way. He's, um, I don't know. Yeah, this it just made me love Martok even more throughout this. <laughs> yeah, the Katai were so cool to me because it, it they are so different from the standard Klingons in this group, and it's kind of mystical and old and the traditional ways and, you know, these caverns and things that they've been in, the snowy planet, all this stuff. It's just, you know, yeah, they're like, you know, the monks and, you know, it's just, it's so different. And I always find them to be cool. But uh, the whole idea of the old way and the Klingons losing their way, and it's like Kalis is the spark, in a sense, that really captures the attention of the Klingons, that there may be hope beyond what they already know. And so he's the symbol, but he can't carry it through all the way. And so he passes it on to Martok to be that, continue to be that symbol of hope and and of this new way which is kind of the old way but it's not just being the symbol but the symbol that can lead and that's 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 mm-hmm. the strength that martok has and and just seeing who's behind him who's working with him from the katai and the group of characters we talked earlier they're just the right group to have behind him to to kind of push him because he doesn't think that much of himself you know, he undermines himself and they're just there to just kind of push him and say, yeah, you can lead. You're the one to do this. I think that, you know, the thing about Martok is that, you know, obviously he doesn't want this, but he's had it thrust upon him. But his idea of what it means to cling on, he doesn't realize it, but it had been shaped by his father and it is much closer to. And, and he didn't realize the, the Katai and what they believe um, about what Kalos had originally taught them, what it means to be Klingon. And so you have this whole thing and, and there's it's really beautiful. You know, again, there's a lot of spirituality for the Klingons here that I think is really cool. But this destiny that he has been prepared for all his life, he just didn't know it. And so it does make him the perfect Klingon Messiah to lead them into a whole not it's not a new way of thinking, but it's the right way of thinking for Klingons. And it's going to make the Klingons, uh, you know, a culture and a species here that will be a benefit to their neighbors and their friends in a way that they could never have been before. Um, they're putting away the corruption uh, that has, you know, taken over for so many years and, and finding their way back, which, you know, it's just so good. And, and in all honesty, I was just really struck by how this book really brought to a close this storyline. And I think it did a fantastic job of making the Klingons as a, a species just so much more interesting. Um, because we 
deconstruct them and we put them back together in a way that means that it would be much more interesting to see Klingons of all types now, you know, like Klingon businessmen, you know, like that that would not be something in, in Martok's empire that would be looked down upon, you know, uh, Klingon scientists, uh, Klingon engineers, all of these type of things. There's honor in all of those type of things because we are doing it for the glory of the empire and using our gifts best for the empire itself. You know, not everybody can be a warrior, but it's honorable to serve the empire uh, by giving it your best. You know, there's even the the point where Kling, where Martok is complaining about the, the lack of good Klingon medical facilities on ships and their antique equipment, you know, like the honor of being able to save warriors who have been in battle, you know, well. So I just... Uh, I'm really interested because of uh, I think we've had nothing but good things to say about this book. And so I'm fascinated to see, you know, where both of you are going to land then with your ratings for book two. I'm going to say that I I put off these books for a long time. I, it's because I, I, I wanted to read them, but everything else gets in the way of other books and we're doing on the show and such. But um, I this didn't disappoint I really enjoyed this. I, it was actually better than I thought it was going to be. It wasn't that I didn't think it was going to be good. It was just I had no idea how good it was. So, uh, yeah, just learning more about the Klingon culture and just seeing... I I hesitate to say it this way because I feel like it's wrong, but it makes the Klingons more human. And, I, and you know, mm-hmm. I don't really want to say it that way, but, I mean, it's true. And I think it's fair to say that because... It's not that I want the Klingons to be human, but it just means that we're all more alike than we think. You know, we're more alike than we are just uh, not alike is what I'm trying to get at. So just to have those dimensions in the Klingons is great. And Martok, you know, wonderful character really built upon in this and and all the other characters and getting more of Ezri, like I said. And yeah, the Ferengi Far was a really great character. He he came a long way since the first book. Uh, so mm-hmm. great character growth there. So I will give this book five out of five battles where one of them turns into a hark. Yeah, I agree with pretty much everything you said there. I, I've never cared too much for Klingon stories in Star Trek. Um, and I think part of it's just the kind of mo- monoculture that we got for a long time until we got, you know, further along into Deep Space Nine. Um, but, you know, and I, I read these books a long time ago, but remember nothing about them. And so I'm really glad for this chance to, to revisit them and, um, enjoy them <laughs> a lot. And, you know, the, I think having JG Hertzler as one of the authors really helped because he embodied Martok on the show, but also knew what, you know, what the Klingon culture should be. And, you know, with Jeffrey Lang being such a, a, you know, great Star Trek author as well. I mean, I think this was just such a great pairing and, you know, the writing in this book was just fantastic between the, um, yeah, that gruesome scene where uh, Marjad turns into a Herc, but even even the deaths in the book um, between Cirilla or um, 
uh, what was his name? Derek or whatever. Um, and then even far when he dies, I mean, that was, those were heartbreaking scenes. Um, but, but honorable, I guess you could say if I can use a Klingon word. Um, but yeah, so I think you know, I'm going to give this one a, uh, a four and a half, uh, and I'll take the other half of your apple from the, uh, from the comic book, but, uh, communicators that are completely busted but alexander is such a smart guy that he can figure out how to still get data off of them <laughs> yeah i mean that alexander i mean he's he's just a genius we just didn't know it uh i'm i mean i can't add anything to what you guys have said i think this is a great duology i think this book takes what they did in book one and and it makes it even better really completes the story in a very satisfactory way uh, I think, you know, it absolutely takes the Klingons and makes them 100% more interesting, uh, just as Deep Space Nine had, had started that trend. And so I'm right there with you, uh, Casey. This is four and a half out of five uh, Katai members. Um, you know, one was split in half by Batleth, and that's why there's only half left. So By the sword of Kalis. He turns turns into a half herc. Okay, so Matt, at this point, I think we have covered all of the post nemesis books. Is that right? I think so, Bruce. You know, the only one that I'm trying to think. You know, I think maybe we did. We haven't covered the lives of Dax, but most of those stories take place. You know, not in the twenty fourth century. Did you guys ever do um, the Gateways books? We didn't do the whole series, but, did, but we did do the one involved in the Deep Space Nine. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there are some out there that we haven't touched. I mean, we haven't done the New Frontier series, um, you know, and those end up taking place in that. I and mean, we never did a Starfleet Court of Engineers yeah. type of thing. But some, again, those kind of take place before Nemesis and after, yeah. Indistinguishable, indistinguishable, whatever by magic. <laughs> yes, but that one doesn't. That that doesn't count. Uh, so, yeah. but no, we have done most of them, if not all of them, at this point, which is really exciting. Uh, and we're gonna be going back to Enterprise, which is exciting. And uh, we're gonna read some Enterprise books soon. And of course, we're continuing on with the New Earth series. But until we get to that, Bruce, if people want to catch up with you and see, you know, what's happening in the land of Bruce Gibson, where can they find you? Well, in the land of Bruce Gibson, I'm on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral, then the underline Rex. And uh, I'm also on the Positively Trek podcast with Dan Gunther talking about all things Star Trek, whether it's shows, movies, books, comics, uh collecting i you know i i don't know there's other stuff whatever star trek stuff there is and um i guess that's about it but i just want to say something to one of our associate producers that's not on the show right now greg rosier i did see you at star trek mission chicago a couple of times from a distance and i never got to come over and say hi to you so i apologize for that but at least we've hung out in las vegas and i'll be in las vegas this coming uh this coming august so maybe I can meet Greg. You should, yes. Well, and uh, before that, you can find me on Goodreads, Letterboxd, Twitter, and Instagram at Knitting Trekkie. 
I'm also lurking around in the Babel Conference on Facebook, and I'm also on a podcast called Mickey's Marvels, where we discuss everything under the Disney umbrella. And, of course, uh, you can find me all over social media under the name MattRushing02, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, Vero, all of those places. Of course, here on the network, uh, not only talking Star Trek, but, of course, all the other fandoms we love under the banner, the 602 Club. And so I hope you'll check that out. It's a blast. Uh, You can also find me doing the Orb, Warp 5, and the Artificial Tango. The Orb is about Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Warp 5 is about Star Trek Enterprise. And the Artificial Tango is about Star Trek Picard. And then, of course, you can find me over on the Nerd Party Network. I've got a finished show I did with Dre Kaufman. We talked about every single chapter of the Harry Potter series one chapter at a time. And then, also, you can find me on Aggressive Negotiations with John Mills as we talk about Star Wars. But thank you so much for joining us And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.